0: I'm a fool. I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. You just said something. Think, 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 think. The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Dun, 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 dun. We are continuing our march. We are taking a break from the historical books. Why? Because there's no other good place to put this stuff. And I say stuff like I'm covering something weird. But the lessons of the prophets will be lost if they are disconnected from their history, if that makes any sense. So this is where we will dive into the first of our looks at the prophetic books. And I'm here to tell you that God never leaves his people unaware. That's one of the great lessons of the prophetic work. Now... What do I mean by connecting it to its history and making sure it can stays connected to its history? But what I mean by this is you can't just look at the history of Israel and then read all the way to the end and then decide, okay, I'd like to understand the prophets. The prophets were real men speaking, living, and writing in real time, meaning they're interacting with the world around them. They I mean, Short of the world around them, their prophetic ministry doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense. So, so if you disconnect it from what the kings are doing and what the nation is doing, what you'll be left with is a whole keeping pile of confusion. And nobody wants that. So what we're going to do is try and—let me restart that. We're going to look at the prophets differently than we looked at the historical books. You have to. I'm not going to try to sit here and parse out all of the prophetic utterances of all of these prophets, especially someone like Isaiah or Jeremiah. We would run out of time. I would fall asleep, you would fall asleep, and then, you know, you'd crash your car or something, and no good would come from it. Instead, we want to see big picture grand themes. We want to see the overarching interaction with history, because remember, we're taking a... Bird's eye and a zoomed-in view, because we're trying to formulate a worldview. We want to see how that worldview, that foundation that we have laid down by understanding God's interactions with humanity, we want to see how that is proclaimed and understood and strengthened through the prophetic mission. I just read that little rundown of Isaiah's work. Isaiah prophesies somewhere in the ballpark of 739 to 680 um according to tradition dun, da, 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 tradition according to tradition he the reason why he stops at the reign of Hezekiah is because it is Hezekiah's lovely son Manasseh who has Isaiah killed I can't imagine why he would like to do a thing like that when you realize it well especially when you remember that Manasseh was evil and Isaiah doesn't you know pull any punches like like seriously none of the punches pulled so Here is the tenor of Isaiah's ministry, starting in chapter 1. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity... "...offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you you be stricken again? As you continue in your rebellion, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds. Not pressed out or bandaged." nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers, are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Notice already, reminder from the prophetic word, God is judging because you are responsible to him because he has made you. Therefore, you will be judged for your sin. But also notice that in the midst of that judgment, he is preserving the people that he has saved. So he is operating as both savior and judge. He is preserving precisely his people for his purposes. If you looked at the title, you saw we are only going to look at 39 chapters, and that's because of the divisions of Isaiah. Yes, I know, if you watch the History Channel, they'll tell you, well, there's really Isaiah, and then there's Deutero-Isaiah. And what they'll tell you is that the book divides so neatly, That and the reason it divides so neatly at chapter 39 is because two people wrote it. Hogwash, again, I need my, I need my uh, Sherman Potter butt, or Saki. The history fits in. You have dueling themes, but I'd like to point out that you don't actually have dueling themes, and we're going to get to that as we get through. As an overarching division, chapters 1 through 35 are kind of your judgment chapters. Chapters 36 through 39, where we'll finish up today, are your history chapters, kind of giving you the little rundown of the tail end of the historical context of Isaiah's ministry. And then chapters 40 through 66 are your promises of future salvation. This is your lofty and uplifted portions of Isaiah, where the judgment has begun, so to speak. And it is now time for God to remind his people that he works and that he ministers. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is because I'd like to read a few of these things and point some of this stuff out. So if you move to chapter 2, talking about the reign of God. It will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. This is why there is no distinction between the first 35 chapters of Isaiah and the last, what, 27, 40 through 66, yeah, 27 chapters of Isaiah. There's no distinction, because even in the midst of judgment, Isaiah is proclaiming mercy. Isaiah is proclaiming grace. Isaiah is proclaiming salvation. You just got an example of that midst of the judgment of God, he is already talking about the salvation that is yet to come. You get to chapter 3. You're talking about the judgment of God, removing the leadership of Israel. Well, Judah, i, I got to be more technical about that. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment in the elders and princes of his people. I'm sorry, with the elders and princes of his people. My lines run together. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts? See, There's reasons for judgment. There are reasons for all of this. Now, again, you're saying, I get that. Isaiah is telling them that their sin will lead to judgment. But the thing I want to point out to you is the message is always balanced. The foundation that we have constructed... Is When when I mean foundation we've constructed, I mean the, the worldview foundation we have constructed is a solid foundation built upon God and his attributes, but it is a mixed foundation in that it is always operating on both sides of the coin. So God is savior and judge. God is preserving his people, both his people in salvation and his people as in the created ones that he has preserved even though they are going to be judged. God is the one who preserves both the sinner and the saint. He is the one who gives those good gifts. He is the one who accomplishes the good things in life for both people. He is the one who does all of these things. So in the midst of this, you see this in the prophetic utterances. You see this in the prophetic words. They are proclaiming not just a message. They are proclaiming an understanding of who God is and what he has done. So get to things like chapter 4. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat of our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. In that day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is in, who is recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, purge the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke in the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain." See, it is those reminders of salvation that should point you to the continuing and precise long-suffering work of God. That never forget that God in his pre- precision is, pre- is being precise over the eons as, the, as you think about time. Don't think about God's work only in the here and now. Think about it in generational concepts. This is, again, why our discipleship is so important. I'm not just discipling for my benefit. Yes, that is part of my sanctified walk. That is part of who I am and what I do. I am honoring God by teaching and training the next generation. But I am still attempting to teach and train the next generation so that they will walk faithfully, so that they will be uplifted, so that they will build a solid foundation, so that they will know, so that they will be honorers of God, who teach and train the next generation. In other words, my work for the kingdom is eternal because it is God who blesses it and upholds it, but because I am doing it now. Just wrap your brain around that for a minute, or let that wrap around your brain, however you want to think about it. My contribution to the kingdom is eternal because God's kingdom is eternal, but my work is temporal. If I do not consider... The long-term impacts of my works. If I do not contemplate the long-term benefits for what I am doing, I am not counting the cost of my work. I am surrendering to the spirit of the age in that moment. I'm not thinking down the road. I'm only thinking of here, now. Now look, I am I'm the person who argues that you can only be faithful now, and that is true. But part of ensuring your faithfulness now is thinking through the ramifications of what that work will mean to you and the people you are discipling 10, 20, 30 years down the road, however far that may be. I point all this out because now I want to give you a little bit of a transition here. It is in Isaiah, throughout this judgment section, that we have some of the great prophecies of the Messiah. You've got things like chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And you may be saying to yourself, wait a minute, I watched a thing on National Geographic. Yes, the Hebrew word there could be translated as virgin or young maiden. Remember, this was also a sign to Ahaz. Ahaz listened to that and was like, okay, so a chick's going to have a kid. A young woman's going to have a kid. That's what they do. That's, that's normal. But before that child grows up, the work of God will be shown. The judgment will be seen. When you see, get to the Septuagint, Greek has two words for young maiden and for virgin. And the temple workers, the scribes translating, use the word for virgin. Why? Because they recognize the dual fulfillment, that God is not just talking about the then and the now. He is talking about God with us, not just in judgment, but God with the remnant, God sending forth one who will rule, one who will reign, one who will protect. That's why you get things like chapter 9. A child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. See, they understood that. Yahweh will dwell amongst his people. Yahweh will be born to us. Yahweh will rule eternally. That's why they have to understand chapter 7 the way they do. This matters Chapter 11, a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his root to bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him in the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Still hope for the promises given in Genesis 49. Still hope that God, who has not forsaken, has not forgotten, will accomplish. Chapter 28. Behold, I am laying in Zion a choice, I'm sorry, a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. New Testament picked up on that, didn't they? That's part of Peter's sermon, isn't it? He is the choice cornerstone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. They understood there was a near and a far... And they understood that because they were thinking in terms of now is my faithfulness, eternally is the accomplishment. Your work bears fruit in God's kingdom, not in the now. Your discipleship will not perfect you now, but it will be shown to have value and be good when you are perfected in eternity in God's kingdom. Your discipleship of your children does not perfect them now but it puts them on a path by which they will be faithful and they will persevere to the end so that God will perfect them in eternity. Chapter 29, chapter 35 does the same thing, by the way. Chapter 29, on that day, the deaf will hear words of a book and out of their gloom, the darkness of the eyes will see. see this is part of what um, chapter 35 is the... Uh, Quote that Jesus uses for I'm hitting the button, that's why I'm stalling. The quote that Jesus uses for John the Baptist apostle, uh, disciples: the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will deaf will be unstopped. Now you're asking yourself, okay, I get this. There's all these Christological things. What's the point, dude? I don't care. Well, one, you should care, and two, notice when these are occurring. These are all occurring in the midst of judgment, in the midst of. Destruction. Chapter 7 through 12 begins God talking about the work in and around Judah. Chapters uh, 13 through 21 talk about the judgment on the nations. Okay, uh, you could argue that 22 and 23 contain that because Jerusalem and Tyre are judged. Chapter 24 talks about judgment upon the entirety of the earth. 25 through 27 are praising God because of this judgment. And 28 through 35 are warning about the judgments and the things that may come. Now, I point that out because it's in the midst of those judgments that God is reminding his people that salvation is coming. Because remember, the Messiah is not here yet, not in Isaiah's time. We're still waiting on the promises. We're waiting on that Davidic king who will rule eternally. We're waiting on the one to whom the scepter belongs from Genesis 49. We're waiting for that next prophet who will know the Lord face-to-face, who will proclaim his teachings, who will do all of these things. We're still waiting on all of that. And the message of Isaiah is, in the midst of the waiting of humanity, the people of God have gone astray. Well, these supposed people of God have gone astray. They have turned aside. They have followed after myths. They have gone after their own things. Therefore, sin is abounding. Therefore, judgment is coming. But God, because he will preserve his people, because he does not just swing violently and wildly, but judges rightly and precisely like a surgeon with a scalpel, because of all of these things, he will not forsake and forget his people. I mean, Case in point, notice the vision of Isaiah here. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. You know all this, right? They come and they proclaim what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. And that's the whole who will go and who shall I send? Here am I, send me, right? Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, I'm sorry, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their ears, I'm sorry, see with their ears, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return, and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people. The Lord has removed men far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Right there, in the commissioning of Isaiah, you have both judgment and salvation. You have warning And you have hope, because God is capable of doing two things at the same time. Christian, this needs to be a comfort to you. This needs to be a reminder to you. I mentioned that chapters 28 to 35 have warnings. What kind of warnings? Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. Trust in chariots because they are many, in horsemen because they are strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. That's a warning then. That's a warning now. Woe to them who think they have enough money in their bank account. Woe to them who have a secure retirement and are therefore worried about the world. Woe to them who think that because of who they voted for, they will be protected. Woe to them whose trust is in their city council. Woe to them whose trust is in their governor. Woe to them whose trust is in whatever. Now, did I say don't vote for good people? No, I didn't. Did I say don't plan for retirement? No, I didn't. Did I say don't hope that your government will protect you from evil things? No, I didn't. That's their job. But in my living in a world where God will judge sin, I have to remember that I conversely live in a world where God will protect his people does not mean I'm not going to die, does not mean that bad stuff will never happen. It does mean that no matter what befalls me, God has not forgotten me. God has not forsaken me. God has not looked aside and gone, what people? I don't see any people. Chapter 35. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. With everlasting joy upon their heads they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee. Christian, that's not in an earthly city. That's in an eternal home. That's in a kingdom ruled by God, dwelt by His people, secured by our Savior. That's where the hope is, that's what the prophets are pointing you to. That's what Isaiah is pointing to. Again, I point this out because we get lost in the minutia. Look, read the books. They'll do you good. It's not my job to tell you not to read them. I've told you a hundred times. Read your Bible. It'll do you good. My point is, don't miss the forest for the trees. One of the ways that'll help you understand your prophetic books better is by seeing large ideas, seeing trends in. Streams of thought and then placing them again. How do I understand my scripture according to who God is and what He's doing? And then how can I apply that to who God is and what He is doing in my world? Because my world isn't like their world. And you're right, it isn't. That's exactly the point. God's eternal work was good then. God's eternal work is good now. iPhones don't relegate and negate God's work. And I know that sounds dumb to say out loud, but we think like that. Well, how does the Bible make sense in the modern world where we have cars and airplanes and... Because it's not talking about your cars and your airplanes. It's talking about you living in submission and security under God. That's what it's talking So, with judgment done, Isaiah gets to a little bit of history. Chapter 36, the Assyrians, fresh off of their destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel and the dispossession of... Shiloh and Samaria come down to Judah. Sennacherib comes up, besieges the city. Things are not looking well. Remember, though, Hezekiah is king. Go team. Why does that matter? Because Hezekiah turns to God. Woe to him who trusts in Egypt. Woe to him who trusts in chariots. Woe to him who trusts in his army. Praise be to him who trusts in God. And that's a lesson. The angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adrimelech and this his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Irshadon, his son, became king in his place. Cool. Now, fun little note, children. Something I've mentioned before, I'll mention it again. Why? Well, I just said, you just said because Hezekiah trusted in God. Yeah. Why do it during Hezekiah's reign and not Manasseh's? Why do it here and there? Why why Hezekiah assembled? Because God is precise in his work in history. The Assyrians, remember, destroy culture. They try to intermarry peoples. They deport some, and look—you you you do you, you deport enough native population and import enough foreign population? What you end up doing is destroying the cultural distinctives and lineages of the native population, and you're also doing that to the foreign population, which is why you've deported—you know—you've deported them from somewhere else to import them here, and, and vice versa. That was fine for Israel. Nobody cares. The northern ten tribes aren't the inheritors of the promise given to David the messianic line. Judah is. We can't have that. Now, Judah will be judged for her sin, but not by a nation that will destroy her heritage, at least not yet. The Romans do a pretty good job of attempting that. But that's a few hundred years from now. Instead, it's going to be the Babylonians to judge Judah's sin. So what Isaiah is talking about here in the late 8th, early 7th century, it's not time yet. Because the world power that's on stage that will allow God to judge the sin of his people while not destroying the work of his promises and kingdom hasn't yet arisen. When it does, they'll be called upon. And you see that with chapter 38. Hezekiah is ill. He prays, he's healed, he's granted 15 more years. And in the midst of that, what happens? At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and present, and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasure. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Why? He's bragging! Look at all I got! Look at my stuff, dude! It's awesome! Woe to him who trusts in chariots! Woe to him who trusts in gold and silver. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that, is in your fa- all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought... There will be peace and truth in my days. That's not how this is supposed to work. That's not how any of this is supposed to work. The problem you've got here is a partial trusting, a partial walking. Welcome to why the prophets are forever calling Israel back in totality. Welcome to why your apostolic letters of the New Testament, building upon the ministry of Christ, are telling you You don't get to put your hand back to the plow. You don't get to go bury your father. You have to work here and now in totality because that's the acceptable thing. I work and I worship and I serve in the here and the now, knowing that God's work is good and that it will preserve me because he has saved me and that the reason I have avoided judgment is because of his work and the proof of that is his precision in upholding me his precision in guiding me, and his work through me accomplishing all that he has purposed to do. So what have we learned today, children? God has witnesses always that in the midst of all of this, there will be prophets, there will be books, there will be everything. God will not forget sin. Isaiah warns them of a destruction that will not come for over a century. And yet it is secure because sin is real and God will judge it. And God is dealing with an entire world always so that in the midst of his judgment, he can preserve his people. In the midst of his preserving his people, he can bring forth judgment. In the midst of his proclaiming judgment, he can point to salvation and peace. Questions, comments, complaints, send them to info at practicaltheologyministries.com. You can go to the website, check out all the information you want, have all the fun you would like. Um, We will continue this next week and move through the prophetic books. Again, we will skip back and forth because we're going to try to cover the prophets as they occur in history such fun. So my brain will be mush and yours will be too by the time we're done, but it will be good for us. So until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.